are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. Very pleased you could join me on this Thursday afternoon where we are gathered together on our YouTube channel. And what we do on Thursdays, whenever I have the opportunity, is I come and do a live question answer with the folks who are able to participate in the live chat. What they do is they type in a question in the live chat window on YouTube. Uh, I respond to their question or comment the best I can. I certainly don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do whatever I can. And it's an enjoyable time for me on Thursday afternoons. Then, of course, these also get recorded and archived on our YouTube channel, and people refer to them later as well. So I don't know if you're viewing with us live. I don't know if you're going to be joining us a little bit later on in the recorded version. But either way, I'm glad you've joined us. Now, as is our pattern, I usually open up by taking a question that's come into me from the YouTube channel, from social media, from whatever. And today, I have a very good question that's come to us from Bonnie over the YouTube channel. She asks this question. She says this, Hi, David. Lately, I've been wondering about the practice of taking communion in solitude at home, in addition to the times it is offered at church. I start by reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, and repenting as the Holy Spirit brings anything to mind, and thanking Jesus for his sacrifice as I take a piece of bread and a sip of grape juice. I know of people who do this, and I started to do this on my own during times of prayer, but then I started to wonder if Jesus meant for this to only be done with the body of Christ. I do not want to take it in an unworthy manner. The verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, specifically from verses 27 through 33, give me pause. By the way, Bonnie, as well, they should because it seems that this should be done in community, not alone. Could you please explain your take on this passage? What about those people who are in a situation or phase in life where there is not much or any community with whom to take communion? Thanks for your insight on this. Well, Bonnie, let me say, that is a wonderful question. And I'm gonna answer it in two ways. First of all, I'm gonna answer a question that you didn't really ask, but I, I think it's a question that commonly comes up with this. And then I'm going to deal with your specific question. Okay, so first of all, Bonnie, for the question that you didn't really ask, how often should Christians receive communion together? And again, this practice of the Lord's Supper, some church traditions call it the Eucharist, some church traditions call it communion, because there is some disagreement in different uh, Christian traditions as to how often the uh, Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist should be taken in exactly what manner it should be taken. And there's some level of disagreement as to what exactly the significance of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, whatever term your Christian tradition gives it, that's what we're talking about. Taking the uh, bread and the cup of the Lord's table of communion in recognition of the death of Jesus Christ representing his body and blood, all that that signifies, there's different ideas in the Christian tradition. Now, Bonnie, you're probably aware of that. Many Christians are. How often should that be done in Christian community? I think what we have to do is say, 
There is no specific guideline given for that. There is a suggestion given in 1 Corinthians that Paul speaks about it, doing it as they come together. And so some people think that that implies a weekly taking of communion or the Lord's Supper together. That could be, but we have to admit, the scriptures aren't clear enough for us to require that as a command. And so I do think that among believers, we need to give liberty to different congregations as to how they will receive communion with what regularity. Some congregations do it every week. Some congregations do it uh, every month. There's some traditions where they do it every day. Uh, again, there, I, I think we give liberty one to another within the body of Christ, understanding that though there may be the suggestion of a certain regularity, there is no commandment or clear statement of a regularity. So we just give grace to one another. Uh, we would all agree that we should never receive the Lord's table, communion, the bread and the cup. We should never receive it in merely a ritualistic way. Uh, but I think that it can be ritualistic and empty of true spiritual meaning, no matter when you take it. You, you could take it once a year and it could be empty of spiritual meaning. So I don't think that the regularity of it necessarily requires it to be more or less ritual. I think this is something that congregations and pastors and leadership teams, they need to determine themselves. Now, that's sort of the question you didn't ask, Bonnie, but let me get to the question you did ask because it's a good question. Here's a question you did ask. Is it okay for a believer to receive communion at home? Just receiving it by themselves without what we might call a duly ordained minister supervising and what might be called administering communion. Now, Bonnie, you rightly note that the context in 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll recommend our viewers to take a look at that when you can, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you're certainly correct that the context in 1 Corinthians 11 implies that communion will be taken in community. And that's why I think it's very important for Christian communities, for church congregations to receive the Lord's table together with some measure of regularity, weekly, monthly, whatever it would be. You're right that the main idea there is in community, but I don't think it excludes the meaningful reception of the Lord's table just between you and the Lord. Or how about this? Just between a husband and a wife, just between a family. I think there's something beautiful and holy about the father of the family as the priest of the home administering the bread and the cup of communion to his family, uh, recognizing that they want to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that they want to receive the work he did on the cross into their innermost being, that they want to partake of Jesus. So you're correct emphasis needs to be on taking it as a congregation in community. And that needs to be done. And that's one of the reasons why it's important for Christians to be part of a Christian community. However, I don't believe that that excludes the idea that it is also okay for the believer to take the bread and the cup and to receive it. Now, those Christians who come from a more sacramental tradition may disagree with what I've just said. They may say that these 
elements of communion, whatever you want to call it, the bread and the cup, and whatever significance you would particularly attach to them, they would say that those things are so important and meaningful that they can only be administered by a duly ordained and recognized agent or individual in the body of Christ. I would just say that to my reading of scripture, that goes beyond what the scriptures instruct and command. So I, Bonnie, I, from my own pastoral wisdom and experience, from my own understanding of the Bible, I think it's perfectly fine for you to receive communion in a meaningful way between you and the Lord at home, as long as that does not replace the coming together as a congregation at the Lord's table for you to do that. I hope that answers your question, Bonnie, and thank you for doing that. Now, I'm going to look over to my uh, chat window here. Raquel, hello. Hi. Glad you could join us. Uh, Terminator, hi to you as well. Sean has a question. Sean says, hi, pastor. Matthew chapter two, verse 23 says that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. What Old Testament passage is that? Oh, baby, Sean, that is a great question. Matter of fact, I, I have a message that I love to preach this message. It's on Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, if it's not already up on our YouTube channel, I got to look around and find it. Although I have to say, depending on how much time I have at a particular church when I'm delivering that message determines whether or not I'll deal with the specific question you're asking, Sean. So it's possible that th there would be a video or recorded version out there that doesn't deal with this question. But Sean, it's a very good question because in Matthew chapter two, verse 23, let me find that since I'm already in here in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter two, verse 23, it says this. It says, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, here, Matthew is telling us that it was spoken by the prophets of the Messiah, he shall be called a Nazarene. Here's the problem, and Sean, you're making a good point on this problem. There is no specific Old Testament verse that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, what are we to make of this? Was Matthew wrong? Are the scriptures wrong? Uh, can we no longer trust the Bible because they got something wrong here? No, not at all. We need to understand what's going on here. First of all, we should understand that some people believe this is fulfilled because, well, let, let me take a step back. It was not fulfilled in the idea that Jesus was a Nazarite. These are two different words, two different words in Hebrew, two different words in English. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. He came from the village of Nazareth, but he did not take the vow of a Nazarite as is described in the book of Numbers and is exemplified several times throughout the scriptures. Uh, for example, Samson had the vow of a Nazarite and so did a few other people throughout the Old Testament. Now, it's not speaking of being a Nazarite it's speaking coming from the village of Nazareth. He shall be called a Nazarene. Some people think that this connects with a verse in Isaiah. I'm thinking it's Isaiah chapter six, chapter nine. You'd have to look it up. But a passage in Isaiah where it says that the Messiah will be the branch from the stem or the root of Jesse. And the Hebrew word for branch 
sounds similar. It's not the same, but it sounds similar to the word Nazarene. And some people think this is a reference back to the idea of the branch. Possible, but I don't think so. This is what I think. First of all, I want you to notice something distinctive about verse 23 of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew quotes the Old Testament there differently than he quotes it in other places. For example, if you go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse eight, uh, 17, it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And then he gives a quotation from Jeremiah. Or in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Now notice. In both Matthew chapter 2, verse 17, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, he says the prophet, and he names a specific prophet, Jeremiah, and then Isaiah. Here in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 2, he says that it might be spoken by the prophets, plural, and he names no specific prophet. I think what Matthew is telling us here is that it was the general expectation of the Old Testament prophets that the Messiah would come as a humble man, the kind of man that would come from Nazareth. In other words, he does not quote a specific chapter and verse or a specific prophet. He's giving us the general expectation of the Old Testament prophets, plural, without naming a specific prophet. So he's just telling us that it was the general expectation that the Messiah would come as a humble man, the kind of man who would come from Nazareth. Therefore, he shall be called a Nazarene. In my mind, that's the best solution to this. So thank you for that great question, Sean. I love talking about that. Isaac says, hi, David. I was wondering where do the Jehovah's Witness community get their belief that blood transfusions are absolutely wrong. Hope you can help. Thank you. Well, Isaac, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which is actually the proper name for the Jehovah's Witnesses group. Jehovah's Witnesses are the followers. The name of the group is called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. The Jehovah's Witnesses or the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, they believe erroneously, I said this is a wrong belief, they believe that blood transfusions are absolutely wrong because of the Old Testament and the New Testament in the book of Acts, prohibition of eating blood. Now, if that sounds a little bit crazy to you, it's because it is a little bit crazy. A blood transfusion is not the same as eating blood. Can I say it again? A blood transfusion is not the same as eating blood. Matter of fact, it's important to notice too that the eating of blood was not only forbidden in the Old Testament uh, for whatever health or dietary reasons, but also because it was commonly associated with pagan practices and God wanted his people separated from those pagan practices. Brothers and sisters, I am completely unaware of any pagan religious practice connected to the transfusion of blood. It's a life-saving thing. And if I may say, I know this sounds strong, but I'm going to say it anyway. It is somewhat of a shame for Jehovah's Witnesses that people have died because of this crazy interpretation of the scriptures, this refusal of the transfusion of blood. But Isaac, that's where they get it. They connect it to the idea of the eating of blood and that being uh, not 
uh, or that being commanded against in the Old Testament. And even it mentions too in the book of Acts uh, that something that should not be done because it would stumble the Gentiles in a very specific application in Acts chapter 15. Hope that's helpful for you, Isaac, and hello to you. Agnes asks a question. Did Bathsheba really have a choice when David asked to sleep with her? Could she say no to King David? Oh, Agnes, great question. And, and let me just give you the quick, uh, most accurate answer I can give you, Agnes. We don't know. We don't know because the text doesn't tell us. Now, we can surmise the text doesn't tell us of any objection upon Bathsheba's part, and especially in light of their later relationship, it at least implies that there was some affection and warmth and romance between King David and Bathsheba. Can we say this for certain? No. It, is it possible? that Bathsheba was a completely willing partner in the adultery that she that was committed between her and King David? Yes, that's possible. Is it possible that because of their relative positions of power, David being a king, uh, Bathsheba being of some kind of royal or no, noble blood, after all, her grandfather was a key advisor to King David, and her husband was one of David's mighty men. But nevertheless, even though she was high in the community, is it possible that because she was below status uh, in regard to the king, that she had no choice and that David essentially forced herself upon this? That is also possible. The text doesn't tell us enough. I lean, I can't say it with certainty, I lean towards the idea that she was a willing participant but I, I have to admit, it can't be demonstrated on either side from the text. It is an interesting question. Uh, I, I think that the entirety of David's relationship with Bathsheba, because not only did she later become his wife and his affectionate wife, but she became his favored wife. There seems to be a legitimate relationship of love and romance and affection between David and Bathsheba that is not impossible to account for if David forced himself upon her, but it's certainly more difficult to account for if David forced himself upon her. So complicated issue and the scriptures just don't give us enough evidence to know for certain, but that's a great question, Agnes. Uh, next, Jennifer says, um, blessing from Massachusetts. Thank you very much, Jennifer. I appreciate that. Martha says, I was reading your commentary on Matthew 4 and the idea, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Your explanations and compilations bring clarity. Thank you. Well, Martha, that wasn't a question, but I just think I'm very happy to hear that, Martha. This is really the goal in the Bible commentary, right? And Martha's given me a, a perfect example to, or opportunity, maybe I should say, to talk about my Bible commentary. Uh, if you only know me through this YouTube channel, you may not be aware, or through the podcast that comes from these question and answer times, you may not know that I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. Uh, it's a life work for me. It's the product of the last 30 or 35 years of my life in ministry. And if I could say it is at this point an unfinished work, 
There's constant corrections and revisions and improvements for me to make, as well as the work of it getting translated into other languages. But in my Bible commentary work, I, I wouldn't call it an academic work. It's not properly footnoted. It's not properly referenced as a true academic work should be. But it is, nevertheless, I hope a serious work of trying to understand the Bible, a serious work written for a popular audience with the goal of clarity and simplicity. So Martha, for you to tell me that I made something clear to you in the scriptures, that makes me very happy. Thank you for sharing that. Cynthia writes and says, are we Gentiles grafted into Israel to inherit the promises? Well, uh, Cynthia, that's a great question. Uh, let me say yes and no. Let, let me say the big answer is yes. And that's repeated throughout the scriptures. That, that Gentiles are grafted in Israel and we inherit the promises that God made. And if I should say especially the messianic promises that God made to Israel. In particular, the promise that God made to Israel in regard to the new covenant. You know, this is something I love talking about is the new covenant. And in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, God promised ancient Israel a new covenant. And there are many terms to the new covenant. One of them sort of belonged to Israel as Israel, and that is the restoration into the land. But more importantly, the promise of the new covenant is basically this, that God would cleanse his people of their sin, that he would give them new life, spiritual life within. And then most pointedly, that God would uh, fill them with his spirit and bring them into special relationship with him. The great news for us as Gentiles is that these promises of the new covenant are offered to us in Jesus Christ. And it's just a wonderful thing that God does so offer them. So in large measure, the promises of Israel are available for us as Gentiles grafted into the community of God's people. However, I would say this, and this is kind of the no part of my answer, that I said there's a yes part and a no part. The yes part is bigger, the no part is smaller, but I do believe that God has also made promises to Israel as Israel. And what I mean as to Israel as Israel, I mean Israel ethnically. And even though I don't share ethnicity with Israel, God made promises to the covenant genetic ethnic descendants of Israel. God still has a place in his eternal plan for Israel as Israel. And those promises properly belong to what we'd call ethnic Israel, not grafted in Israel. Now, those are promises relating to the land, promises relating to their place in God's coming a kingdom established on this earth. But, but those are really, in, in the big picture, lesser promises, yet still important promises. And those belong to Israel as Israel. But the big answer to your question, Cynthia, is yes, we are grafted into those promises and grateful for it. Uh, Martha gives me a comment in Spanish. I'm not even going to try to read it in Spanish, but thank you for your comment, uh, Martha. Uh, maybe someday we can get somebody working with some translation here on our live stream. Uh, Jose gives a comment. He says, what biblical considerations should I think of when making steps of faith? 
I mean, if there is there an alley full of thieves and I have a choice between that alley and another route? Okay, Jose, this is a great question. Uh, does a life of faith prevent me from taking wise action for my life? I would say, Jose, absolutely not. You can walk by faith and see the alley full of thieves and say, by faith, I'm going to walk a different way and go a more prudent way. Now, it is possible that God might speak something remarkable to you and give you remarkable guidance in that situation and guide you down a dangerous path for his glory, knowing that there may be a price to be paid for it. But that is something we would guard as a exceptional leading of faith. The normal workings of faith work very naturally, supernaturally. And so we shouldn't think that faith would automatically lead us down the more dangerous path or down the more strange path or anything like that. Faith may guide us along the path that uh, you know is prudent and wise at the same time. If you're going to take a path that is more dangerous and less prudent, it should be by a very specific prompting of faith that you do that, Jose, not just in the general walk of faith. That's how I would best answer your question there. Thank you for the question there, Hosea. Um, you Right, and I'm going to kind of give the follow-up here. You say, by faith, I am not going to take the alley full of thieves, but what other biblical statements should I think of? Well, you know what? You could go to the entire book of Proverbs and look at how it tells us to walk in wisdom. And then just how we're supposed to walk in wise, prudent lives. Just do a word search for wisdom in the book of Proverbs and throughout the New Testament. And you'll see that generally speaking, Jose, God wants us to walk with what I would call sanctified common sense. And I think that sanctified common sense would lead you away from the alley full of thieves unless there was a very specific leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that um, we're, we're to walk in the wisdom Walk as wise, not as fools, Paul tells us in one of his letters. So those are the ones. Do, do just a little word search for wise and wisdom, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, and you'll find plenty there that will really kind of give you a scriptural basis for what I'm talking about. Thanks for that, Jose. Cynthia says, P.S. I use your commentary to learn and study the scriptures to teach the Bible. Thank you for your enduring word studies and work. Well, Thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm very pleased to hear. Let me say one more thing about the Bible commentary. Uh, I am happy to say that the Enduring Word app, now, again, I want to apologize to all our Android users. At the present time, it is still only available on the iPhone. We've had some bugs come up with sort of the launch of our Android work. Just please keep it up in prayer. We know that these are practical things, but sometimes we sense there's also a spiritual dimension. Behind it. We really want to get the app launched in Android, and it's going to come. We've just been facing a few technical obstacles, but we got sort of a new look to the app, and it's working great, and we hope that you can use and download the app right now, presently only for iPhone users but or uh, iPad users as well. It's on the iOS platform, hopefully soon on the Android platform. Uh, continuing on, uh, Bailey says, uh, oh, that's an awesome question. I'd love to get your perspective on the verse that's quoted in the second part of 1 Timothy 5.18, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Uh, well, basically, 
what he's speaking about there, Paul writing to Timothy, I'm going to just turn over to it. First Timothy chapter five, verse 18. First Timothy chapter five, verse 18 says, for scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages or reward. Look, uh, I got to be straight with you, Bailey. In context, he's speaking of the legitimate principle that those who labor in the word of God to bring forth God's word to a congregation or to a community or whatever way they do it, they are worthy of being financially supported for that. Now, when I say that, I, I'm almost a little bit hesitant to say because it could sound self-serving. I'm one who labors in the word, but I can't get around what Paul says. First Timothy chapter five, verses 17 and 18 says this. I'll read starting verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The Bible teaches us the principle that those who labor in the word, those who labor work hard, I would say, to feed God's people are worthy of being supported financially from God's people. Now, that is a principle that is sometimes abused. And it is sometimes a principle that cannot be fulfilled from a practical basis. God bless the bivocational pastors who work hard in teaching and labor in the word, but yet the resources just aren't there to the community that they minister to, and they cannot be supported. And so they labor in the word and they're not able to be. So God bless you for your work by vocational pastors, those who labor in the word and don't receive. Now, Paul's just saying that if it is possible, there is a right, there, there is a, a responsibility for a community that receives something from God's word to do whatever they can to the people who do feed them God's word. That's what it's talking about the context. Now, I will add this, Bailey. There's also the principle that, when somebody does a valid service, if you can, you should pay them for it. Now, if somebody wants to do something as a volunteer, then praise the Lord. You see, just because somebody receives the uh, uh, right to be paid for something, it doesn't mean that they need to take that right. They can lay that right aside. But uh, somebody who works for something, if it's at all possible, they should be paid for it. And that especially applies in the context there, Bailey, with the ministry of the word of God. All right, let me continue. I'll get through to these next questions. Raquel says, I wanted to clarify my question, point last week regarding security. It was more from a theological standpoint, such as the verse that says that our days are numbered. I'm a bit confused. Well, it's true, Raquel. The Bible says that our days are numbered, but let's just realize that number is known to God and not to us. And so we should conduct our lives. I think as the question I answered earlier from Jose, we should conduct our lives in a prudent way. Uh, we, we should try to keep ourselves healthy without making an idol out of our health. We should try to live safe lives without making an idol of security or you know, uh, safety, whatever it would be. So, yes, uh, we are, I think, given the wisdom from God to live our lives in a prudent way, knowing that 
to God's glory, we can do good on this earth as long as we are on the earth. But when God has our days numbered and when that number, which is known only to him, when that day has gone, then we will gratefully go and graduate from this life to glory. Uh, Bailey says, yes, it's Isaiah 11, 1, the one that I referred to before about the branch coming forth. It wasn't Isaiah 6. It wasn't Isaiah 9. It was Isaiah 11 about the branch. Thank you for that, Bailey. Daniel says, what biblical passages are used to justify infant baptism? Greetings from Poland. Well, Daniel, God bless you. And uh, as a man of half Polish heritage, thank you for your work there in Poland. All right, Daniel, the main justification for infant baptism theologically uh, follows along two lines. And I want you to know that I don't agree with the practice of infant baptism or pedo-baptism. And to me, it's not a minor matter. Now, it's not of ultimate importance. And of course, it's not a matter to divide among people in the body of Christ, but I think it is a significant matter. And let me just tell you quickly, the two main ideas uh, that sort of uh, those who believe in infant baptism refer to. The number one is a simple idea of covenant. They say that God deals with his people on the basis of covenant. And in the Old Testament, we have the example of covenants, including families, including children. And they would say that because baptism is the sign and the seal of the covenant for God's people today, that it's wrong to withhold that sign and the seal of the covenant from children because children are included in the covenant. All right. Now, that's the one argument, sort of the covenantal aspect of it. The second argument comes from Colossians, where they would say that in Colossians, there is a connection that Paul makes between circumcision and baptism. And they would say that because circumcision is administered to children, uh, by the way, as a mark of the covenant, so baptism should be administered to children as a mark of the covenant because of that principle I just stated before, children are in the covenant. I have a lot of objections to both those ideas. I'm not going to get into them in any great depth. I would love to spend more time talking about them, but let me just give you my very quick objection to those ideas. I would say, number one, if you're talking about baptism in regards to the covenant, to my knowledge, if I'm incorrect in this, I, I welcome people answering on social media or in the comments on this or whatever, the follow-up. I am completely unaware of any passage of scripture that tells us that baptism is the sign and the seal of the new covenant, period. Now, Paul does say that circumcision is the sign and the seal of the old covenant or the Abrahamic covenant more specifically, but nowhere do I find a scripture saying that baptism equals circumcision. It is absolutely true that the apostle Paul makes a link between baptism and circumcision in Colossians, but I don't think any fair reader can say that Paul means that baptism equals circumcision. So there's that aspect, but there is no specific verse at all that says that Baptism is the sign and the seal of the covenant. If there is anything that would be a sign and the seal of the new covenant, it's communion. It's the Lord's table. Jesus said, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus made a very deliberate connection between the covenant and communion, not between baptism and the covenant. Second thing I would say is, what covenant specifically are children brought into? To my reading, it cannot be the new covenant. The new covenant has specific promises of cleansing of sin and regeneration and, and being born again and being filled with the spirit, which most people who believe in paedo-baptism, infant baptism, say are not granted to that child at that time, but only later. Again, it's a little bit difficult because many different denominations, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, a variety of Protestant denominations, they have somewhat different understandings of infant baptism. So it's a little hard to say with certainty, but for the most part, they would say, no, those things aren't granted to them. Well, then what covenant are children part of? And usually the answer that I've been able to notice, again, I, I would appreciate some education on the specific point for many in our listening audience. Usually the answer that's given is this, is that it's the covenant of redemption. Now, the covenant of redemption as usually described, according to my reading, is not something that is specifically biblical, but it is a construct of systematic theology. I like sticking with the biblical categories of Abrahamic covenant, old covenant, new covenant. And it's the new covenant that is establishing in the church. So th that would be mine. You could see I'm kind of passionate about this. I'd love to get into a greater, or more in-depth discussion later, but I hope I've answered your question there, Daniel. God bless you. Brent says, when did acceptance change from multiple wives to one wife? Well, the acceptance of it changed in the New Testament community where it was understood because of Jesus's emphasis on one man and one woman coming together in a one flesh uh, relationship. And Paul's insistence that leaders in the church should be the husband of one wife and that polygamy was not a desirable thing. That's where it began to be accepted, Brent. But I just want you to know that it was something that from the beginning was so. Please remember that God established the pattern of monogamous marriage in the very beginning. And Jesus highlights this in Matthew chapter 19 when he teaches on marriage. He says, have you not read that from the beginning it was not so? Now, uh, I don't know if you could say that specifically King David and Solomon and Abraham and other people had more than one wives. I don't know if you can specifically say that they were in sin, but they were certainly out of God's declared best because God's declared best was established in the Garden of Eden in the beginning, one man with one woman for a lifetime, that monogamous relationship. If God really wanted to establish and approve of polygamy, he would have made several wives for Adam in the Garden of Eden, but he did not. So the acceptance of it came in the New Testament community. However, the uh, principle of it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, Brent, your question brings an interesting question to my mind that I can't answer for you. I would be very interested to know what the rabbinic understanding of polygamy was in Jesus's day. 
Th that's something that could be researched and found out. I'm sure people have done research on that. I can't give you the answer to that, but to me, that would be a very interesting question. Okay, Carol says, uh, I was almost completely through your Bible commentary before I discovered you on YouTube. You're part of my daily readings. I love that. Uh, by the way, I'm going to wrap up just with the questions that have already come in here. Uh, we won't go any further. We're going a little bit longer than we usually do, but that's okay. Uh, Jeffrey Rogers says, David, heading over to Israel. Very excited. God bless you, Jeffrey. You're going to love your visit to Israel. Uh, just to throw this out there, we are at least in the thought process of putting together an enduring word trip to Israel. Uh, maybe next year, don't know when, I, I don't know exactly, but we're, we're thinking about, we do have an enduring word cruise of the Mediterranean where we're going to visit many biblical sites in the Mediterranean and in Israel. Uh, that's happening in September, October. That's all full. There's no more, but we're talking about future uh, tours, either cruises or land tours that we can do with our enduring word family. Uh, continuing, Martha says, God bless you. Please provide a translator. I love your teachings. What can I see? I sense. Thank you, Martha, for that. And uh, we'll do, we're, we're trying to increase what we can do in translation. Bless you for that, Martha. Uh, Redemption in Christ uh, says, does Psalm 5-5 teach that God hates the wicked person? Thank you. Well, yes. I, I mean, Psalm 5-5 says this. Let me read it to you. Uh, turning back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 5 Verse five says, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. And we would just say, yes, in a sense, this is true. Now, if you want to have a biblical understanding of how God regards the worker of iniquity, the sinner, the person who's in rebellion, opposition to the person disobedient to him, you, you have to take the whole span of scriptures. But certainly in part, God is against that one and he wants them to change. And he wants them to come to salvation. He wants them to forsake their sins and be forgiven. And so God is against that person in a sense. Does God hating, again, I read from verse five, does God hating all workers of iniquity, does that encompass everything that God feels and thinks and regards the unbeliever? No, not by any means. But does it regard something? Absolutely it does. And then... uh Bailey says, thanks for the answer. I've seen people cite Luke chapter 10, verse 7 as the source for the quotation of scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. Want to know your thought on that? Would affect the date of authorship? Um, well, no, not necessarily, Bailey, because even if it's true that Paul was quoting first, uh, was quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 7 in his uh, writing in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it doesn't mean that the Gospel of Luke was necessarily written before that. It could have been in a saying of Jesus that was known and repeated and understood. I'm saying it could have an effect, uh, but it's not necessarily determinative that Luke was written before 1 Timothy. A very interesting case there. Then finally, Joanne says, a brother in Christ will post scripture to me. When I respond biblically in earnest love of God's word, they often say, you're trying to one-up me again. How can we un-up with God's word help? Well, Joanne, all I can say is that if you're giving them the scriptures in a loving way, uh, and by loving, I just mean, look, you just bring the scriptures. Hey, would you please think about this verse? Just think about what God says. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're going to regard it wrong, but I, I think we should feel free to share scripture one with. I think the words of the Bible should be the words on our lips, should be the words that we uh, share with one another. Um, and hopefully we're doing it appropriately. 
uh, we're not telling people, you know, go hang yourself like Judas did and giving Judas as an example, but we're doing it in an appropriate way where we're applying what the, the scriptures are saying to what they're thinking or talking about. Uh, but yeah, just do it humbly and lovingly. And uh, I think it's a good thing for us to be sharing more scripture with each other and not less. Well, this session was great, a uh, little bit longer than most of ours, but I'm very happy about that. I uh, hope you can join us again for the next time we do in the YouTube live. So pleased that you could join me on this Thursday afternoon. As always, I want to say thank you to everybody who supports the work of Enduring Word, uh, especially now in this particular season this summer. We've been giving a matching grant and we're letting people know about it. And that's a great opportunity. So uh, we're very grateful those who can uh, donate, especially during this particular time. But thanks to you who pray, those of you who support, we're very grateful. And God bless you. Thanks for joining us and look forward to the next time you can join us for one of these live question and answer times. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.